The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case and do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC or the Invisible Choir podcast team. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. They tell you when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Maya Angelou. Everything he showed me made me believe he's not the person that I saw on the news that killed this young woman. In a dumpster outside, they found trash bags, plastic sheets, and other cleaning materials. When the defendant was booked in Delaware, he notes that the scratch on his face is from her. Boston, Massachusetts, a city with a population of almost 700,000 people, known for its professional sports championships, clam chowder, and its prestigious colleges and universities. Boston is also one of the most diverse cities in America, ranking sixth among the nation's 25 largest cities in regards to its foreign-born residents. It's fair to say that in the capital of Massachusetts, you'll have no issue running into all walks of life when out and about in the city. However, with all walks of life comes just that, the good, the bad, the ugly, and in this case, the evil. What's interesting about a large city such as Boston is that it's particularly easy to blend in, especially if you're a well-to-do young professional with a master's degree and no criminal record. No one would ever suspect a person like the previously mentioned to ever commit a crime as heinous and gruesome as what we often hear about on the 6 o'clock news. What if you knew that man, or at least you thought you knew him? What if this person was your neighbor, was extremely polite and had a welcoming personality? Surely it wouldn't be unheard of to at least say hello, especially if you were out for a few drinks, say, on your birthday. It's quite common in the bar scene for patrons to socialize and interact with those that they have just met. Even in an East Coast city like Boston, where many are more likely to wear a chip on their shoulder before their heart on their sleeve. These interactions happen every single night at the bar. Even in the digital worlds of Tinder and Bumble, a nightclub is still very much the place some visit just for that reason, to meet people. More often than not, this is a concept we consider to be perfectly normal and accept as harmless fun. Soon-to-be 23-year-old Jassy Correa certainly had as well. The night she met a man with a pearly white smile on the sidewalk outside of the venue nightclub in Boston, Mass., in the early morning hours of February 24, 2019. Jesse had no idea that when she accepted a ride home from this friendly young stranger, that it would be her last, and the group of girls whom she'd arrived with earlier that night, but had somehow separated from upon leaving the bar, would never see their friend alive again. It was the evening of Saturday, February 23, 2019. Jesse Correa was getting ready for a night out with some friends. It was her 23rd birthday in just a couple of days on the 26th. The group decided they'd celebrate by heading out to a popular nightlife area in Boston known as the Theater District. Wearing a bright orange jumpsuit and large hoop earrings, Jesse was dressed to the nines in an outfit as colorful and vibrant as her personality. Jessie was picked up by her friends and the group made their way into the city. They were headed to the venue nightclub, located at 100 Warrenton Street in Boston. Just as any group of young adults in their 20s might, the friends enjoyed one another's company from late at night into the early morning hours of the next day, drinking, laughing, and just having an all-around good time. Before they all knew it, however, it was 2 a.m. and the club's bright house lights were turned on, indicating that the night was now over as all patrons were asked to move towards the exit. 
The group of girls were heavily intoxicated by this point, and somewhere upon exiting the bar, an argument ensued among the circle of friends. Jassy Correa is seen on the sidewalk outside of Venue Nightclub on surveillance video without her shoes on, just after leaving the bar. Yavinia Mondesir, one of Jassy's friends that was with her at the time, had mistakenly left her phone inside of the club. At 2.16 a.m., now in the early morning of Sunday, February 24th, a man outside of the group approaches and starts up a conversation. The friends, still arguing at this point, began to separate from one another, each heading off into their own direction. Allegedly, shortly after, Jassy's friend Yavinia was so intoxicated that a police officer noticed and offered to give her a ride home after seeing her walking by herself in downtown. The last visible image of Jassy Correa from surveillance video shows her leaving alone with the man that had just approached the group moments earlier. The video shows Jassy seemingly willingly entering the man's red Buick four-door sedan. He then proceeds around to the driver's side, starts the vehicle, and the two then drive off into the early morning Boston darkness. It was the last time that anyone would lay eyes on Jassy Correa in public. Almost two full days go by, and no one has heard from Jassy. Her family and friends by this point are starting to become increasingly anxious and extremely worried. After not having seen Correa since the early morning hours on Sunday, Yavinia Mondesir decides to notify Jassy's already worried father to express her concern. At 5.30 p.m. Tuesday, February 26th, the very day of Jassy's 23rd birthday, her friend Yavinia and Jassy's father head to the Boston Police Department to officially report the 23-year-old missing. On Wednesday, February 27th, the Boston PD released a missing persons alert for Jassy Correa, including video and still shot images captured from the surveillance camera. Police knew after combing through the footage that they needed to identify the unknown male in the video because he was the last person seen with Jassy Correa alive. Police announced they were now considering the disappearance of the young woman a kidnapping just the day after Jassy would have turned 23. Authorities swiftly posted their report to the BPD's website and social media pages, along with the following message. As seen in the video, the unknown male has facial hair and is wearing a dark jacket with a white undershirt and dark pants. February 24, 2019 surveillance footage in the vicinity of Tremont Street and Stewart Street in Boston, Massachusetts. Anyone with information is asked to contact the FBI Boston Division's Violent Crimes Task Force. Tips can also be electronically submitted at tips.fbi.gov. Several more days go by and still no sign of Jassy, so her friends and family decided to take the initiative and hang flyers all throughout the city of Boston in hopes that someone, anyone, had information on her whereabouts. You're going to start to see these flyers all over Boston. Friends and family are putting them up in a desperate attempt to find her. The flyer, typed on white computer paper with two photos of Jassy Correa at the footer of the page, included the following urgent message. Jassy Correa, last seen leaving venue nightclub Saturday night. Been missing for four days. She is 5'3", 130 pounds, light skin color. Last seen wearing an orange jumpsuit, back exposure, gold hoop earrings, no shoes. If you see her or know anything about her whereabouts, please contact us. Right now, a young mother has been missing now for several days, and her family is asking for help finding her. The one man most desperate among those family members to find Jassy and safely return her home was her father, Joaquin. If I don't see my daughter, I don't know how I'm going to live. I feel bad. Joaquin hadn't seen his daughter since the evening of Friday, the 22nd, the night before Jassy and her friends were out at the venue nightclub. Local media reports began to flood every television screen within the Boston metropolitan area including those inside the Correa family household. Her father painstakingly watches repeated distorted still frame images from various angles, making scrupulous attempts to identify the man shown only in poor quality in the surveillance camera footage. Joaquin knows that the shadowy figure's silhouette is of the man who last saw Jassy alive. He's also sure that he's never seen him before, and given the close relationship Jassy shared with her father, 
He knew that even through static and skewed images, the fact that he didn't recognize the man was not a good sign and only caused the family additional concern, including Jassy's brother, Joel. Monday, she didn't text me. I'm 19 right now. In March, I'm gonna make 20. So I don't have nobody to call sister or brother if I lose my sister. Joaquin Correa reflected on Tuesday, February 26th, the day of Jassy's 23rd birthday, and how he tried calling her repeatedly to no avail. Jesse, no answer the phone. I said, no, no answer the phone. The, the, it was straight to the voicemail. So we tried to call, 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 call. Joaquin grew even more suspicious of Jassy's disappearance when her belongings from the night she went missing mysteriously showed up at their home, but with no sign of Jassy. After you're going to get it, Jesse shoes, Jesse bag, Jesse keys. For good reason. Jassy's father found this to be extremely peculiar and was desperate for any explanation. For his daughter not to answer calls on her birthday, a day that for as long as anyone in the family could remember, was celebrated with Correa relatives far and wide, the unsettling feelings of doubt and fear amongst their loved ones only worsened by the minute. We're all trying to think of the best outcome and think that she's alive and out there, but her father's kind of just like, you know, it's been four days. On Wednesday, February 27th, 2019, the day after Jassy was formally reported missing, her friend Yavinia Mondesir, who was with her the night she disappeared, expressed her growing frustrations with the case on her Facebook page, posting the following message to those who were suspicious of her actions that night. I'm already working with detectives. At this point, I'm looking for my friend too. I'm the one that contacted her family and the police and said we need to find her. I just got my phone back from Venue on Tuesday, yesterday. And when I realized she hadn't tried to contact me and wasn't active on her social media, I knew something was wrong and started tracking her down myself. No matter if we were fighting that night, she would have still hit me up or someone would have heard from her by now. Somebody knows or saw something. The chick Penelope was in front of my house with her man when I was getting out of the car with the cop because she was dropping off Jassy's gifts and her shoes. Why the hell did she have her shoes? My biggest regret is getting blackout drunk. But at the end of the day, Jassy's other friend, who was clearly the sober one in the situation, left her, and she was her ride. I was driven home by a damn cop, because her girl was my ride too. So obviously, if I had to be driven home by a damn cop, I had nothing to do with her disappearing. Yavinia seems to defensively address individuals on her social media that may be accusing her of withholding evidence in regards to Jassy's disappearance. From this Facebook post, it's clear, at least according to Yavinia, that Penelope was allegedly Jassy's ride home that night, another friend who was among the group of girls before they got separated. According to Yavinia, Penelope was also the one to drop off Jassy's belongings at her apartment the night she went missing. Soon after Yavinia's post, Boston police made an incredible breakthrough discovery in the case. After tediously sifting through records from that night at Venue Nightclub, police were able to match the enhanced digital photo of the man leaving the club with Jassy to his driver's license. At the nightclub venue, each patron is required to scan their ID at the door before entering the bar, thus leaving behind a lengthy digital record of everyone who entered the establishment. The blurry man's face from the surveillance camera now had a name, as well as an address. That name was Louis D. Coleman III, a 32-year-old resident of Providence, Rhode Island. I want to get right to the man that police have announced they are looking for, his 32-year-old Louis Coleman III of Providence, Rhode Island. He is wanted in connection with the disappearance of Jassy Correa. After obtaining Louis Coleman's driver's license information, police were not only able to verify his identity, but also confirm his address and the type of vehicle that he drove. The red sedan that had been heavily publicized by media outlets, originally thought to be a Nissan Altima, seen leaving venue nightclub with Jassy Correa that night, was actually a 2016 Buick LaCrosse. That red Buick was consistent with the vehicle that Lewis Coleman drove that was actually registered to his mother in California. Police then proceeded to follow up on this new lead and knew that the next place to look would be Lewis Coleman's residence at 95 Chestnut Street in Providence. On Thursday, February 28, 2019, police were granted a search warrant for Lewis Coleman's apartment. Surely anticipating their eventual arrival, the 32-year-old was nowhere to be found when police came knocking at his door. 
This apartment here in Providence, this apartment complex, has been the focus today of intense police activity. It started early this morning around 6.30 when police from Providence and the state of Rhode Island and Boston showed up here and started going through a sixth floor unit on the top of the building. They started bringing out evidence in bags. They were here all day, a small army of detectives. At one point, they started going through the dumpsters outside and one that is inside the building looking for evidence. After entering Lewis Coleman's apartment, as well as conducting an extensive search of the apartment building's dumpsters and trash cans, some very crucial and incriminating evidence turned up. One of the first things that police noticed upon entering his apartment was that one of the covers to Coleman's couch cushion had been missing. During the search, police were also able to obtain the building surveillance video from the parking lot. Video showed that Lewis Coleman was there just a few hours before, and as they reviewed the footage further, they saw Coleman exit the building several times between 2.44 and approximately 4.02 in the morning on the 28th. He was seen making multiple trips to the dumpster of his apartment and then to his car, carrying several trash bags, a bottle of bleach, cardboard boxes, a laptop computer bag, a PC computer tower, and a duffel bag. Coleman then proceeds to enter the red Buick LaCrosse and exit the parking lot. Police had just missed him by a couple of hours. Authorities then scan the security footage even further, uncovering the events of the days prior. Coleman was seen on surveillance video inside of the building, wheeling a suitcase away from his apartment door, number 602. A few minutes later, he is seen wheeling the suitcase up to his red sedan and lifting it into the trunk. Coleman is seen struggling on the video as the suitcase seemed to bear a significant amount of weight. After noting his concerning behavior, police then referenced back even earlier in the video, identifying footage of the day Jassy Correa vanished. They looked through all of the tapes, beginning in the early morning of Sunday, February 24th. They were not only in disbelief of what was captured on video, but disturbed at what they found next as the tape continued to play. At approximately 4.15 a.m., roughly two hours after Jassy had last been seen outside of Venue Nightclub in Boston, Massachusetts, a red Buick LaCrosse is seen on the video, pulling into the parking lot of 95 Chestnut Street, Lewis Coleman's apartment building. The sedan looks to be consistent with the images police released to the public in their desperate pursuit to track down Jassy's whereabouts. The video from Coleman's parking lot shows him exit the vehicle and walk into his apartment. A short time later, he is seen returning to the car, only this time he's holding what appears to be a bed comforter or blanket. Coleman is then seen carrying what looks to be a body, tightly wrapped in the blanket from the vehicle into the building and all the way up to his sixth floor apartment. From the long hair and orange dress visible in the footage, police ascertain that he's carrying the body of Jassy Correa. At approximately 4.27 a.m. on Sunday the 24th, Coleman is seen from the footage inside of his apartment lobby, dropping a seemingly lifeless body and then proceeding to drag the limp person into the building's elevator. The video confirms that his victim was indeed female, nude from the waist up, wearing orange pants or a dress that appeared to have been pulled down. Footage then captures Coleman exiting the elevator on the sixth floor, continuing to drag the body down the hallway towards his apartment, number 602. Lewis Coleman doesn't reappear on the video again until Tuesday, February 26th. This time, he is seen leaving and then re-entering his apartment a short while later with what appeared to be Walmart shopping bags. Police were then able to obtain video from a local Walmart in Providence, as well as the receipt for the items Coleman had purchased. Upon reviewing the itemized list on the receipt, what little hope police had left of discovering Jassy Correa alive somewhere quickly faded. Three Tyvek hazmat suits, duct tape, two candles, electrical tape, one mask, surgical gloves, two pairs of safety goggles, one odor respirator, DLN release bleach bath. In a matter of a few short days, the disappearance of Jassy Correa had quickly turned from a missing person and kidnapping case to a possible homicide and body recovery. Only once was Jassy Correa's body seen on the video being carried into Lewis Coleman's apartment, 
and after police thoroughly searched the unit and found no sign of her anywhere, they concluded she couldn't possibly have left under her own power, or alive for that matter. Narrowing down their timeline of events, authorities gather that Coleman was last seen at his apartment in the early morning hours of February 28th, exactly four days after Jassy Correa went missing. Exiting his parking lot in the now infamous Red Buick, Lewis Coleman never returns to his residence, leaving home for the last time. After hitting the road and deciding to cross the state lines from Rhode Island into Massachusetts, he unknowingly had reached a whole new plateau of criminality. Having done so, this case would now be considered a federal crime, thus opening Coleman to a whole new investigation and the eligibility for the potential charges that come with it. Louis D. Coleman III was now being considered a fugitive on the run, narrowly evading police by just a few hours after fleeing his apartment. Local police continued searching the expansive property at 95 Chestnut Street in Providence, while federal authorities were notified across the United States that the search for Louis D. Coleman III was now considered a nationwide manhunt. But Coleman wasn't a fugitive on the lam for very long. He was spotted by police in Wilmington, Delaware, just 304 miles from his Providence apartment. He was pulled over by police on February 28th, the same day Providence PD obtained a warrant, and the word for his search went out nationally. At just after 2.45 p.m. that afternoon, Delaware police pulled Coleman over, swarming in with multiple cruisers. When a Delaware state trooper questioned Coleman, asking him if there was anyone else in the vehicle with him at the time of the traffic stop, Coleman's response was nothing less than shocking. Officers could never have prepared for his answer, muttered in a low and defeated tone under his breath. Jesse Correa's family's worst nightmares came true that afternoon. As the disturbing details of the traffic stop came to light, the Correa family is met with utter devastation. Upon placing Louis D. Coleman III in custody, the FBI held an immediate press conference following his arrest. Here is U.S. Attorney William Lelling explaining in further detail the events leading up to Coleman's capture. Providence police searched Coleman's apartment on Thursday, February 28th, where they found two packages of hooded coveralls and two respirator masks, among other things. They also noted that a cover was missing from one of the cushions on um, Mr. Coleman's couch. In a dumpster outside, they found trash bags, plastic sheets, and other cleaning materials. Later Thursday afternoon, Coleman's sedan was located and stopped on I-95 South near Wilmington, Delaware. Delaware State Police made the stop. According to the complaint affidavit for the charges brought today, when asked if anyone else was in the car with him, Coleman said, she's in the trunk, or words to that effect. In the trunk, troopers discovered a body wrapped in a sofa cushion cover, inside a black trash bag, inside a suitcase, matching the one Coleman was seen bringing into his apartment. The victim was naked, bruised, bound in gray duct tape, and covered in what is believed to be baking soda, and the body matches the description of Miss Jassy Correa. Other items found in the car did include a duffel bag, a new pair of long-handled loppers, that heavy tool used to cut down thick branches, a new pair of pliers, garbage bags, a new gas canister, a butane lighter, safety glasses, work towels and work gloves, and disinfectant wipes, among other things. At booking in Delaware, Coleman was asked about a bandage he had on his right cheek he is alleged to have said, it's from the girl. It's fair to assess that the scratch on Lewis Coleman's face, which he allegedly admitted was from Jassy Correa, was the result of some type of last-minute struggle as she attempted to defend herself. Tragically, her efforts were unsuccessful. As Coleman's mugshot began making the rounds on public media, most were stunned at how remarkably normal and unthreatening he looked. Although the man likely responsible for her death was now in custody, 
police still had many unanswered questions. But more important than motive at this point was that the Correa family had just received news that they had tragically lost a daughter, sister, cousin, and mother. Jassy's two-year-old daughter, not yet even old enough to comprehend that she will sadly grow up without her loving mother. I think it's found in the car. The trunk. <laughs> I can't believe my sister. It's unfortunate that the family has to deal with this at this time, and it would be un it's unfortunate that any family would ever have to deal with this in the city of Boston or across this country. Um, women should have a right to go to any nightclub and wear whatever they want to and not worry about being kidnapped and murdered at the end of their night. There are still so many unknowns surrounding Jassy Correa's senseless murder. The main question, of course, being why. The specific details of what happened between the hours of 2.15 and 4.15 a.m., the morning of February 24th, have yet to be disclosed. We know that these are the hours Jesse went missing and appears to no longer be alive when Coleman is caught on video surveillance cameras carrying a small figure matching her description into his apartment. Investigators eventually revealed her cause of death as the result of strangulation and blunt force trauma we still don't know exactly what took place in the moments leading up to Jassy's murder. What we do know is that according to investigators, she didn't go quietly without putting up one hell of a fight. Preliminarily, it does appear that she put up a struggle. Um, for example, in the red sedan in which the defendant was stopped, there are cracks in the forward windshield on the passenger side. We don't know yet whether those are connected to a struggle in the vehicle. And also, as I noted before, she died of strangulation um, and there was significant bruising on her. Uh, also, when the defendant was booked in Delaware, he notes that the scratch on his face is from her. So there are definitely indications that she did not go quietly. We can't know yet exactly what he planned to do with the body, but all of the uh, cleaning and cutting supplies in the vehicle and that he got from Walmart imply that he planned to somehow dispose of the body. In addition to the cutting items, which suggested Lewis Coleman may have been planning to dismember Jassy Correa's body, he also had in his possession at the time of his arrest a gas can, butane lighter, and charcoal, perhaps suggesting that he also intended to burn her remains. This case, now over two years old, has still not been brought to trial, and though COVID-19 has certainly played a role in its continued delay, the investigation is also taking considerably longer because of the FBI's involvement. When Lewis Coleman crossed state lines from Rhode Island to Massachusetts, eventually venturing into Delaware, it became a federal investigation, for which he was subsequently indicted and charged with one count of kidnapping resulting in death in federal court. Although none of the three states through which Coleman traveled with Correa's body are active death penalty states, he still remains eligible for the death penalty if convicted of the federal charge. Little is left to the imagination in regards to other potential suspects once the body of the missing 23-year-old tragically turned up in the trunk of his car. But who exactly is Lewis Coleman? After digging a little deeper into his background, it appears that he led a somewhat abnormally average existence. The 32-year-old was a systems engineer at Raytheon in Portsmouth, Rhode Island since 2017 a major U.S. defense contractor in the business of manufacturing weapons and commercial electronics for the military. He also holds a master's degree in physics from Cal State University with a focus on the study of respiration. He would even go on to help create and develop an application called Sleep Counter with a mission of helping the millions of people who suffer each year from insomnia. This well-accomplished and educated young man certainly does not fit the criteria most would assign to a cold-blooded killer. Yet perhaps that idea in itself is what makes this case so terrifying, that Lewis Coleman could be anyone among us, and that even the charming, well-to-do young professional might well be capable of abducting and killing an innocent 23-year-old young woman. Lewis Coleman's own family was just as surprised as anyone to learn of what seemed to be his double life. Coleman's cousin would express these feelings of shock to the media. Growing up, I mean, he was always that cousin that everyone wanted to be like. You know, he 
he had all the games, had all the toys. You know, he grew up in a nice house. I, I have no idea what could have got him in this situation. I, mean, I don't even think he was arrested before. As soon as I saw that information, like, you know, like, you feel bad that it's happening to your family, but as for him, it's like, I, I don't really feel too bad. You know, I feel sorry for the, the girl, her family, my own family, you know, his parents. It seemed that just about everyone that came in contact with Lewis Coleman all shared the same sentiment, that he was simply a normal, nice guy. Even his neighbor Joey, who lived directly below Coleman's 602 apartment at 95 Chestnut Street, would go on to express thoughts of the same to a local journalist after learning of his alleged involvement in Jassy Correa's death. He's a nice guy, he, but who knows now? now? Nowadays, you don't know. His neighbor Joey also claims to have heard noises coming from Coleman's apartment the very night of the alleged kidnapping and murder after Jassy Correa had first gone missing. I heard, like, someone like hurrying up, like dragging, not dragging, um, like he was like opening drawers and shutting drawers and just, we heard rustles, like, like, like he was coming in from a, um, a club. Between these firsthand accounts, the timeline of events, and the immeasurable video evidence stacking up against Lewis Coleman, it's difficult to conceive any plausible explanation to his involvement that could result in an eventual not guilty verdict. But that is exactly how he pleaded the morning of April 9th, 2019, during his first preliminary hearing in federal court. Though his trial is still pending, the big question now does not seem to be if Coleman is guilty or not, but rather if the federal criminal justice system will seek the death penalty, a decision that is yet to have been made. In the most recent reports, just over two years after the death of Jassy Correa, Coleman's defense team has stated publicly to the media that Louis D. Coleman is not guilty of kidnapping resulting in murder, but rather that he acted in self-defense after an alleged drunken fight and struggle broke out sometime after the two had left the venue nightclub in Coleman's red sedan. His attorneys have also gone on record to insist that this crime was not a case of stalking or methodical kidnapping, but rather was a result of a sudden altercation between the two. At the time of her death, Jesse Correa weighed 119 pounds. Lewis Coleman, around that same time, weighed in at 200. Coleman has also since retracted his statement given to officers immediately following his arrest in Delaware. He had reportedly stated to the trooper that the scratch on his face was, quote, from the girl. Recent court filings, however, show that Coleman has since changed his story, claiming that the mark on his face was from a, quote, shaving accident and not from any type of struggle with Jassy Correa. As more details become available to the public in this case, it has also been revealed that only hours after Lewis Coleman was caught on camera, allegedly dragging Correa's body through his apartment lobby, he had been texting with another woman. This woman was allegedly someone Coleman had met at the bar. That same night, Jassy went missing. The flirtatious text exchange between the two indicate that during the hours of Correa's alleged murder, Lewis Coleman was casually planning to meet up with another woman once he was, quote, back in Massachusetts. Unbeknownst to the woman on the other end of those text messages, Coleman's trip entailed the transportation of Jassy Correa's lifeless body and the trunk of his Buick across multiple state lines. And perhaps one of the most devastating elements of this case is that even prior to Jassy Correa's tragic encounter with Lewis D. Coleman, a history of domestic violence and abuse at the hands of other men had run deep throughout the course of the young woman's adult life. Jesse Correa, the young woman who was found dead in the trunk of a Rhode Island man's car, survived a horrific case of domestic abuse just over a year ago. At the time of Jesse's murder, she had been living in an emergency shelter for women who had been victims of domestic abuse, located in Lynn, Massachusetts. Only 13 months before she was found dead, the father of Jassy Correa's child, Miguel A. Castro, was charged with domestic abuse and the kidnapping of Jassy Correa. Jassy's mother received several text messages and photos sent secretly by Jassy during the attack. The photos consisted of images of herself beaten and bruised while she was being held captive in Castro's Lawrence, Massachusetts basement. After Jassy stealthily texted her mother for help, she then notified the police and told them that her daughter was being held against her will under the man's basement steps. 
Jesse told her mother not to call Castro in fear that he may kill her. When police arrived, they questioned Castro and he told authorities that everything was fine and that Jesse had taken an Uber ride home. Not fooled by his claims, and upon further investigation once inside his home, police discovered Jassy Correa beaten in his basement with injuries including a broken nose. Miguel Castro was later sentenced to four and a half years in prison for the kidnapping and beating of the mother of his child. These events only add to the level of depravity and sadness, knowing that Jassy had escaped a violent attack and possible death once before from a former abuser. No one deserves the type of abuse that Jassy Correa suffered, never mind her eventually losing her life as the direct outcome of an eerily similar attack just over one year later. Surprisingly, the events of Correa's first kidnapping at the hands of Miguel Castro were never made available to the public when it happened as the result of a Massachusetts state law that passed in 2014. The law, intended on anonymity, prohibits the names of victims from being publicly mentioned in the media. It was originally established in an attempt to encourage the abused parties to come forward and to report their abusers with comfort, knowing that their names would never show up in newspapers or online. Though in theory the practice sounds like an incentive for victims of domestic abuse to come forward, the law also inadvertently protected the confidentiality of the abusers, allowing them the freedom of not to have to worry about the repercussions of ending up on the news for their actions. This legislation could very well have inadvertently provided a sense of false security for domestic abusers in the state of Massachusetts, enabling them and giving them a false sense of security and committing additional acts of violence towards their partners in the future. The nightlife scene is almost never one we'd attribute to the magnitude of danger that Jassy Correa faced while out celebrating her 23rd birthday. In fact, those familiar with the nightclub and bar atmosphere might agree that the very reason most attend these venues in the first place is to do just the opposite of worry. We seek out these establishments in order to relax, to let loose with friends, and forget about the stressors we're inevitably met with in our everyday lives. There's a general sense of carefreeness that most adults attempt to achieve when planning a night out with friends, and the effects of alcohol certainly help to facilitate that state of mind. Yet with blissful suppression of responsibility comes vulnerability, whether we're aware of it at the time or not. Regardless of how confident we may be in our judgment and decision-making abilities, anyone under the influence of alcohol is at a disadvantage and is less protected in comparison to a person who isn't. We certainly never think that we could befriend a predator or someone that has the potential to hurt or even murder someone during a drunken rage, especially without noticing any prior warning signs. Well, that's exactly what Brandon thought too. My name is Brandon. Originally, I am from Wareham, Massachusetts, and I currently live in Providence, Rhode Island. Brandon J. Golms was a bartender and later bar manager at the nightclub Ultra in Providence, which has since closed after multiple incidents, including a non-fatal shooting and stabbing, having occurred within just a couple of months of one another in 2018. He was kind enough to sit down with Invisible Choir and provide us with this exclusive account, a never-before-heard take from someone that actually knew Louis D. Coleman III personally. To me, he was just a regular, like a regular customer. Very frequent. Every day that we were open, he was there. I mean, because it was right in front of his house. So typically Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If we weren't open on Thursday, he would be there Friday and Saturday. Brandon would eventually meet Coleman, who was known by the staff on a first-name basis. The charming regular frequented the bar almost every night that the club was open. He also explains the close proximity of the bar to Coleman's apartment, attributing this as an innocent enough reason as to why he may have been in the bar so frequently. The front steps of his building to the entrance of Ultra was probably 50 yards. I remember him because he had a really nice smile and he ordered Long Islands all night. Like that's what he would order is Long Islands. Long Islands, Long Islands. Anybody else want a drink? Oh, okay. Yep, they'll have Long Islands. Lewis Coleman's drink of choice was the Long Island iced tea, questionably the strongest drink that any bartender can legally prepare and supply in a glass. 
The drink is made from several shots of anywhere from four to five different alcohols in one serving. The sole purpose of ordering one of these gin, rum, tequila, vodka, and triple sec concoctions is to get messed up and fast. It seems nothing short of coincidental that the one and only drink that Coleman would so generously order up for his friends and acquaintances in the bar is among the very few beverages on the menu that could so quickly initiate a blackout drunken state. In a city known for their free pours and often eyeballing measurements such as Providence, it's pretty clear that Louis D. Coleman III knew exactly what he was doing and what he hoped to accomplish by ordering these drinks for people. I've never seen him argue or anything. He was happy, he was smiling. He would talk to people and people would want to talk back to him and then they'd end up all getting drinks together. Everybody's cheers in and it was always just a good time. The first time that I got his name was from his credit card because he like was running like a tab. You always had to have a tab if you were using a credit card. Weirdly, I don't know if David falls anywhere into his name, but I thought his name was David. While in the midst of a chaotic shift, bartending in the dimly lit nightclub, Brandon had mistakenly called Lewis David, which was actually his middle name as seen on his credit card. From that point when I seen his card, which was probably in the middle of the night as I'm running it at 2.33 in the morning, I called him David and he was like, it's Lewis. Like, and I was like, oh, okay. Nice to meet you, like, again, like, officially, because I had just gotten it from his card prior to that. Like, how we exchange phone numbers. We had different events every week at the nightclub. I would send him the flyer or whatever was going on that week. Hey, we're open Thursday, Friday, or hey, we're, we're open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's a holiday, ow, you know, stuff like that. And, like, it, it was an every week thing, and he would come in, and he would get drinks for me because I was still bartending at that time. Brandon mentions Coleman's upbeat and funny personality and how, even joking at times, he called Brandon his cousin to others when they were out socializing, laughing lightheartedly at their similarity in physical appearance. Never in his wildest nightmares would Brandon expect to see his recently acquainted friend on the news that February day in 2019. The photo that they showed of his, like, mugshot, he looked drained and, like, it wasn't him. Like, it didn't look like him at all. <laughs> at all. The person I remember. Like, when they were showing his picture on the news and they weren't saying his name, like, I didn't recognize him and I was on my phone and it came up on Facebook and it was like, um, have you seen this man, Lewis Coleman? It freaked me out. I still, at that second, did not believe it. I reposted it on my Facebook and I put, Lewis, they're saying that you took this girl and I don't know if you did or not, but please return this girl safe and sound. I called him after I posted that post on Facebook saying, if you have this girl, please return her. And then shortly after, I called his phone. And when I called it, he picked up and hung up on me. So then I called back. And at this point, I had already known like they were looking for him. So it wasn't it wasn't so much for me to figure out if they were looking for him. It was to try and help them find him. But I just wanted him to tell me where he was or like if this girl was OK. So when I called it back, right, right, right back, it went straight to voicemail. And then I sent him a text message. And I said, hey, I just wanted to see what you were up to. Like nothing. And he wrote, I'm headed to D.C. for the weekend. I'll hit you up when I get back. And I said, all right, I'll talk to you then. And then literally like 20 minutes later, they caught him. So I don't know if because my call like pinged his phone and like off of a tower or whatever. But yeah. Police didn't track Lewis Coleman's location by using his cell phone. Instead, they used the OnStar GPS system that was installed on his Buick LaCrosse. The OnStar GPS data was pivotal in Coleman's abrupt arrest. However, had the OnStar system not been installed on the Buick, it's clear from Brandon's text message that Coleman was actively using his cell phone in the moments leading up to his arrest. Either way, it's certain that Lewis Coleman wouldn't have gotten far as police began to zero in and were in fact attempting to locate him via cell phone data as well. Brandon willingly offered a screenshot of the text message exchange between himself and Lewis Coleman at the time of this interview. The text reads just as Brandon described, with a time and date stamp of February 28, 2019, at 12.27 p.m., roughly two hours before Lewis Coleman was pulled over with Jassy Correa's body in the trunk. This communication between the two 
now frozen in time, is only a visual reminder of just how close Brandon had come to the supposed killer. The eerie timestamp chronologically lining up to the exact period when Jassy Correa's lifeless body was to be found begs the question, do we ever truly know who our friends are or the people we most closely and regularly associate with? As for Brandon Gomes, the answer to that question moving forward is most assuredly no. They tell you when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Maya Angelou. Everything he showed me made me believe he's not the person that I saw on the news that killed this young woman. Just when it seemed as if this case couldn't get any more complex, new DNA evidence may soon suggest otherwise. Federal officials continue to build their case for the shocking kidnapping and murder of a young mother in Boston. State police investigators are considering that very same suspect for another set of violent crimes. Many believe Lewis Coleman resembles a DNA-produced image of the suspect in the unsolved murders of two women and the brutal rape of three others in Brockton. In 2016, 20-year-old Ashley Milet of Brockton, Massachusetts, was found brutally murdered in the woods behind one of the city's VFW establishments, her dismembered body hidden among a large stack of firewood. Upon further investigation of the crime scene, police noted that Ashley Milet was not the only body to have been disposed of at the site. After removing her remains, police were shocked when they discovered the bones of another woman, who was later identified as 50-year-old Linda Schufelt went missing the same year as Ashley in 2014. Linda Schufelt's remains were found directly underneath Ashley's body, though it was clear that her remains had been there longer based on her advanced state of decomposition. The two women had been missing for several years, but their cases had gone cold, and the killer had never been caught. As part of the investigation, Parabon Nanolabs, a company out of Renton, Virginia, that focuses on DNA and genealogy, produced a digital image of Ashley Milet's likely killer based on a DNA profile that he had left at the scene. The DNA sample recovered from the crime scene not only hit on the body of Linda Schufelt as well, but also matched three additional rapes of other women that had been victims in and around the Massachusetts area. All five cold cases shared the DNA of the same unidentified man. Mark Milet, Ashley Milet's grandfather, found an uncanny resemblance not only in the digital composite, but in the similarities with his granddaughter's murder to that of Jassy Correa's when the news broke in 2019. When Lewis Coleman was finally extradited back to Boston for a preliminary hearing in federal court, Mark Milet was in attendance as well because he wanted to have a look at the prime suspect himself. I was stunned. It just stirred up a whole bunch of bad memories. We're, we're living it again now. It's been like five years since our granddaughter. And we just feel that it's getting attention like it should. And things are stirred up. And I hope maybe we can get some answers. Though Lewis Coleman is not formally considered to be a suspect in these additional cold cases at the time of this episode, authorities have gone on record to state that they are taking a further look and revisiting the circumstances surrounding these unsolved crimes. While no readily available evidence has definitively linked Coleman to any of these additional crimes, they certainly do have the potential to be linked back to him after appropriate investigative DNA analyses are conducted. The DNA phenotype digital composition of the man, responsible for Milet and Schufelt's murders, in addition to a string of rapes in the area, does bear a strikingly similar resemblance to Lewis Coleman's mugshot, the location of where the remains of both women were found lies just 47 miles away from Lewis Coleman's apartment at 95 Chestnut Street in Providence. And as we're all aware by now, Lewis D. Coleman III is definitely no stranger to the open road. Jesse Correa's Facebook page is still active, now emblazoned with the posthumous header Remembering above her name. A page once used by a vibrant, quick-witted, and charismatic woman as a vehicle of laughter, jokes, and interactions with friends and family has since transformed into a reminder of a great loss in the form of her virtual memorial. A public space online where friends and family leave messages expressing their love 
grief, and commemorations of Jassy's life. One of the very last posts Jassy would ever make on her page was on February 17, 2019, five days before she was last seen alive on the cusp of her 23rd birthday. That post was a fundraising link, along with the following message. For my birthday this year, I'm asking for donations to the Childhood Domestic Violence Association. I've chosen this nonprofit because their mission means a lot to me, and I hope you'll consider contributing as a way to celebrate with me. Every little bit will help me reach my goal. Jassy surpassed her humble goal of $200, raising a total of $392 for CDV. Sadly, no one would have any way of knowing that another fundraiser would be created in her name just 11 days later. The GoFundMe organized by the Correa family to raise funds for her two-year-old daughter has since been closed, raising a total of just over $150,000, a goal that no family should ever have to set for the tragic loss of a loved one. If you're listening on Patreon right now, Jassy Correa would have celebrated her 25th birthday today, were she still alive. <laughs> 